This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The question needs to be asked, and apparently it needs to be asked again and again. What exactly would replace the consumer welfare standard for federal approval of corporate mergers? Cato's Jennifer Huddleston offers her thoughts on new proposed merger guidelines. We might question whether or not, from an economic perspective, federal permission to engage in large mergers is necessary, and that's a sort of a separate discussion. But until now, uh, how have the feds approved or not approved and on what basis have they made decisions about large mergers? In the past, there was a set of merger guidelines that were largely focused on consumers and consumer welfare. Um, These were based on relatively objective economic standards to try and evaluate whether consumers would be harmed by potential mergers between large companies and what, if any, impact an increase in the concentration could have. One of the things that we've seen recently at the FTC and the DOJ in kind of changing norms around antitrust is a shift away from this economics and objective focused approach to something that is much more subjective and based on their desired policy outcomes. The latest example of this are new proposed merger guidelines that were were recently released by the DOJ and the FTC and will be up for comment until about uh, September 18th. So up for comment, people want to know what these new merger guidelines, uh, whether or not they're which I guess is a rulemaking, right? Right. So these are, are, it's a bit different from kind of your your traditional process there, but these new guidelines would be something that would be used by policy enforcers, in this case, the DOJ and the FTC, in determining which mergers were potentially allowed to go forward. And at least uh, at first blush, you look at what standards ought to prevail for uh, mergers and consumer welfare, if that means what we think it means, uh, is a pretty reasonable uh, standard. What is the criticism from Lena Khan and others at the FTC about the consumer welfare standard that seems insufficient, that that these new guidelines are necessary? Of these significant changes to antitrust law, and I cannot emphasize enough the significant impact that these changes would have not only on businesses of all sizes, but on consumers and the ability of the government to intervene in the economy in general, claim that there are certain things that are are actually harmful that are slipping through the cracks because we're relying too much on the economics right now. The idea that there is some sort of benefit from ensuring that there are a certain number of players in different industries, from ensuring that certain types of transactions do or do not happen, from ensuring that that they are able to to um, make sure that that certain policy preferences when it comes to the economics or to certain industries are continued rather than just relying on those objective standards of economic analysis that we've tended to see be the focus of antitrust in the past. Now, one of those is uh, how hard it is for new players to enter or exit 
markets, right? That that has always been a disciplining force uh, in uh, many markets, be it broadband or providing email or any number of other products or services that we're uh, accustomed to. Uh, where does that fall? I mean, is that any part of the consideration? It's interesting is one of the, the big debates often in antitrust cases is what is the relevant market and the idea of, you know, how do we define markets for different things? We've seen regulators in the past put forward theories that are very prescriptive in what they define as the relevant market. One recent example of this is what we've seen with the case uh, trying to stop the Microsoft Activision merger, where it really focused on some very small niches of video gaming, particularly cloud gaming, that is something that hasn't really taken off and that most consumers aren't using. And there's a lot of kind of technical and, and entertainment reasons for that. What we've seen is that in some of these more creative definitions of potential markets, like we saw in Microsoft Activision and also in the attempts to block um, Meta's acquisition of within, that the courts have rejected this, that basically you can't just claim that there could one day be a market and that because this is the first mover, that therefore you are already have this authority and concern. In other cases, we've also seen, you know, looking to the past, cases where the FTC or other enforcers did not consider how the market was changing. A, a good example of this was the Hollywood video blockbuster merger being blocked because they were focused on video rental at a time when the way we consumed home entertainment was changing. Um, so markets remain incredibly dynamic, particularly when we're talking about new technologies, but we need to be very careful with the idea of allowing agencies to, to kind of dictate what the market is, what it should be, and also of these kind of creative theories that are, are looking at these hypothetical ways that the market could evolve. Because we've seen in the past, regulators' crystal balls ball is often broken and that they don't uh, know what exactly the market's going to do, and that it's consumers and consumer response and demand that is a much better predictor. Yeah. So I like a marketplace where everybody's constantly trying to eat everybody else's lunch. And yet we also see, you know, when I'm sitting at home consuming entertainment, Apple TV is available on my Roku device. Um, all, all sorts of channels are available v through Amazon prime. There are, these guys are working together even while they are trying to eat each other's lunch. And so I guess the, the next, my next question would be to what extent are these new rules, you know, to what extent will they make for a less freewheeling market where people are, where firms are actually trying to do that? So one of the other concerns we often hear, hear put forward by the folks that are proponents of these kind of rules are concerns about a quote-unquote kill zone. The idea that when a new market entrant becomes popular, that all of a sudden one of the big guys jumps and tries to gobble it up. And that that's how they're, they're stomping out the, the next Apple, the next Google, the next Facebook, the next Amazon, whatever big company that that someone is particularly concerned about. 
But that neglects several things. First off, it neglects how often those small um, acquisitions can be beneficial to consumers, consumers who would have never encountered a product before. Second, it neglects the fact that people get into entrepreneurship, develop an innovation for many different reasons. Some do want to grow an IPO and be the next Apple or the next Facebook, and we should certainly applaud them for that. Some folks are more serial entrepreneurs, or they see a way to make an existing product better, and being able to be acquired may be the best exit strategy. By making mergers and acquisitions harder, it's limiting those different options that an entrepreneur will have and ultimately harming consumers because when entrepreneurs don't have those exit options, we don't know what's going to happen to those products, whether they're still going to get developed, whether they're still going to have the mass mass reach that to consumers that they may have in other cases. And so we really need to be concerned about the way that these merger guidelines might not only impact, say, the large players who are the ones often engaged in the acquisitions, but also the smaller players in terms of their ability to to think through what all the options are for developing their product and for for ultimately reaching consumers. And it also is sort of, I got to say, you know, you said that the crystal ball is broken at uh, many federal agencies, or at least typically is. Um, mergers often don't work out. They're they're they often discover the efficiencies that I think somebody like uh, a group like the FTC is assuming. Quite often, they're just not there. I think we've seen this happen in in many cases where there were either mergers that there were a lot of concerns about that turned out to to not be not only not problematic but not really that successful when it came to to the efficiencies as you mentioned and that but we have also seen that in many cases these mergers or or acquisitions have been incredibly beneficial to consumers one of the ones i like to to point out that oftentimes gets brought up in with a lot of scrutiny is meta's acquisition of whatsapp many people forget that before what that at one point you had to pay for whatsapp messages this is an example of how consumers benefited and the fact that we've seen a rise in the number of kind of encrypted messaging services that different people are comfortable using in part because WhatsApp gained popularity because it was a company that consumers were familiar with. And so they might be more willing to try different services. And there's a familiarity with what these services provide. The other issue, and we'll close with this, is to the extent that we've seen U.S. senators and others attempting to jawbone big tech companies, that is to say, nice company you got there, we'd really like it if you behaved a certain way in the marketplace. To the extent that the transition seems to be away from consumer welfare as a relatively more objective standard for determining the wisdom of a a specific merger to a less clear standard, one where there are many potential, more potential veto points, I suppose, would actually give the feds a lot more leeway to engage in that type of jawboning with teeth. It certainly would. And I think it's important to remember those who, you know, are, are looking at these changes, but are, have traditionally been 
skeptical of government power or intervention or even those who are are typically more comfortable with it, that when you give this power to a federal agency, whether it's the FTC or the DOJ, you are giving it to that agency regardless of who's in power there. This is not something that can just be easily cabined to whatever area you are particularly concerned about or particularly considering, you know, for scrutiny. And it's not something that can be cabined just to when the people you think will do it correctly are in charge. It's very hard to claw that power. And particularly with antitrust, when we're talking about the ability to stop these business transactions or even calls to unwind some of these transactions that have already taken place, that is an incredibly powerful tool to intervene in the American economy. Jennifer Huddleston is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.